Our New Testament readings for this month will be uh, from the book of Luke. We're going to take a break from uh, the Gospel of John as we uh, celebrate this Advent season. So today's reading will be from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, and that being the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And our sermon text today is in John chapter 13 beginning in verse 12, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, beginning in verse 12. When he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Be seated, please. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. Thank you, music team. I mean, there's really nothing like Christmas music, is there? I mean, the theology of it, the, it is just, I could sing Christmas music all the time. And I want you to know, if I was the one uh, to make the choice of someone uh, to sing that Noel song, I'd take our Sarah over anybody in the whole universe. So, uh, Sarah, thank you. God bless you. We love you. What a, what a joy to worship with you in song. I'm so thankful for our music team. Uh, more than performance, worship, worship of our God. Amen. Um, this month, your, uh, your suggested book of the month uh, uh, from, I think, last month, 
so you could order it for Christmas was the J.C. Ryle compilation of J.C. Ryle Advent uh, meditations on not only the first advent of Jesus, but also the second advent. And um, at the beginning of that book, <clears throat> he writes this, My chief aim in all my writings is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and make him beautiful and glorious in the eyes of men and to promote the increase of repentance, faith, and holiness on earth. And I say amen. That should be the heart and the goal of every believer. To make Jesus, either with our words, with our lives, with our music, with our preaching, with our teaching, with whatever we do, make him beautiful and glorious in the eyes of men. And I pray that this series on the names of Jesus has done that for us uh, the last few months. On every Sunday that we gather, may the Holy Spirit make Jesus more beautiful and more glorious in our eyes. Let's pray to that end this morning. Father, thank you for another Lord's Day. Thank you for this second Sunday of Advent. And thank you for Jesus. May we leave here today seeing him clearer. May he be more beautiful and glorious in our eyes than when we first came in. And that's our prayer, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you're visiting with us today for the very first time, we're in the toward, sort of toward, towards the tail end of an uh, alphabetical study of the names of Jesus. Uh, we started with the letter A, Alpha and Omega, and we've, we've pressed on uh, since the beginning of summer. Uh, and we're at the letter T now, and today we're going to look at one name for Jesus, starting with that letter, or one title for Jesus, and then we're going to make some Advent connections to that. Um, our title for Jesus today is Teacher. Jesus is our teacher. John 13, 13, in the middle of the text that uh, Ray just recently read, you call, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. So Jesus, you know, acknowledges that this is a valid title for him. Yes, you call me teacher? Well, that's good because I am that. I'm, I'm, I'm your teacher. And so we want to answer the question real quickly, what kind of teacher was he? Well, we could answer that right away and, and move on to our Advent thought by just saying, well, he was the perfect teacher. He was the perfect teacher. But I want to real quickly, uh, before we get to our Advent ponderings, uh, consider four aspects of his teaching. In, answer, what, in answering the question, what kind of teacher was Jesus? Acknowledging totally he was the perfect teacher. He, he, he never left a, a, a teaching session saying, oh man, I wish I'd have said something else. Like I often did during my teaching career. Okay, uh, he, he never did that. He was the perfect teacher. But let's look at four things real quick. First of all, number one, Jesus taught by example. He taught by example. Ray just read that in verse 15 of our sermon text in John 13. He says, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I've done to you. Now, what was the setting of that statement? What had just happened previously? Well, we all know he had just washed his disciples' dirty, stinking feet. 
In his book, The Secrets of the Spirit, Ray Steadman wrote this. There can be little doubt that here Jesus was deliberately working out a parable for the instruction of his disciples. He was dramatizing for them the character of his ministry. He was showing them, teaching them, by this means what he had come into the world to do and what he would send them out to do. So Jesus not only teaches us as his disciples, modern-day disciples, he not only teaches, teaches us the life of servanthood, he, he demonstrated it. He fully demonstrated it. First in his life by washing the disciples' feet, saying very clearly and pointedly, I've given you an example to serve one another, but then also by dying for our sins, laying down his life. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus not only teaches us through speaking to us from this book, he taught us by example when we read of his life in the Gospels. Secondly, a second aspect of Jesus' teaching, he taught with compassion. He taught with compassion. Mark 6, verse 34, when he went ashore, Jesus, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I've always marveled at this text, and I think it's so interesting and so uh, instructive for us that Jesus' compassion and teaching are directly connected. They're directly connected. Once again, I believe Jesus is teaching us by example on, on how to show compassion. We don't read... Um, Jesus had compassion for them and felt sorry for them. We don't read that Jesus had compassion on them and, and coddled them. We don't read that Jesus had compassion on them and brought them cookies. We don't read that. And, and I'm not, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Okay? One of my bride's Number one ways of showing compassion is a Tupperware bowl of Oreo ice cream. Yes, do that. I'm not belittling those compassionate actions. But I'm hoping we will focus on what Jesus did, which should be included with our various valid acts of compassion. He had compassion on them, so he taught them. His compassion resulted in teaching. Now, how, what kind of applications can we make in this? What are, what are some possible examples for us in this day and time of what he teaches us when we're downtrodden, when we're depressed, when we're hurting, when we're broken, well, <clears throat> when we're distressed um, by the things of the world, 
and the things that are going on in the world. Jesus demonstrates compassion by teaching us in John 16, that he has overcome the world. In this world, you'll have tribulation. Yes, I'm telling you that. You will. But take heart. I've overcome that. I've overcome all that. I've overcome the world. When we're, when we're tempted to give into or to believe satanic things, Jesus has compassion on us. And he teaches us that he's greater than Satan. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you, he who is in you, Jesus, by the person of the Holy Spirit, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You don't have to give in to those things. You, you, you don't have to surrender to them. Jesus says, I'm greater. I'm in you, and I'm greater than the one who's in the world, the one who's the prince of the power of the air, the one who's the, the, the Lord of this fallen world. I'm greater than him. Remember that. When things aren't going well, when, when, when it's, everything just seems to be falling apart, and we just have a hard time seeing anything good out of what's happening. Jesus shows his compassion for us and teaches us that God works all things. All things. All things. Not most of the things. Not some of the things. All things for good. Romans 8. You're familiar with this. 28 and 29. And we know that for those who love God, and let me just pause right here. You say you might be saying, "Well, hey, but the verses you've read, you know, the last two, that was the Apostle John, and that was the Apostle Paul." The whole book is the voice of Jesus, right? We haven't forgotten that. That's basic, okay? Jesus speaks through John. Jesus speaks through Paul, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. <laughs> For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his son. And some of these things that are happening to us and around us that we can't see any good in. Jesus teaches us that it's good because God is using it to bring about the ultimate good, which is our Christ-likeness. The hardships that we go through, the tribulations that we go through, the heartbreaks that we go through, the hard times that we go through are molding us, shaping us, chipping away the sinful aspects of our fallen flesh, and we're coming out of those and coming through those a little bit more like Jesus day by day. Step by step. So press on, beloved. Press on. God is working all things for good. Jesus teaches us that. When we're tempted to believe that Jesus doesn't love us, 
he pours out compassion on us and teaches us from Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the key is, are you going to hear Jesus teaching you? He has compassion on us, so he teaches us. Thirdly, and and we could go on and on with that, right? That was four examples of life situations that that are all common to us. You know, nothing that you endure is, is, is uh, unique to you. Every, every, everybody, we've all been tempted in the same way. Even Jesus tempted in all things, yet without sin. And every time, no matter what the situation is, Jesus is compassionate towards you. And he teaches you how to get through that situation. Now, now do, you, do you believe that? Do, do you believe that? As we've said many times, Christianity is more than believing in God, right? It's more than believing in It's also believing God, believing God. We can never say Jesus just doesn't love us because Jesus has taught us that there's nothing, n- nothing in all creation that can separate us. From his love. So do you believe God? Do you believe the teaching of Jesus? Third aspect we want to talk about. Again, we could go on and on on the ways Jesus shows compassion to us by teaching us. We could be here all day for that, all all year for that. But let's move on to number three. Jesus taught, we've seen by example, Okay, we've seen with compassion, but he he taught constantly. He taught constantly with the powerful against him. This is so applicable for us today, okay? In Luke 19, we read this, and he was teaching daily in the temple, so constantly, constantly. He was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people. Wow, wow. Principal men of the people. I wonder who that is. The principal men of the elite, okay? The elite. They were seeking to destroy him. They were seeking to destroy him. But, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. So Jesus' teaching was constant and regular. It was daily. And the fact that people, even principal people, principal people, wow, principal people wanted to destroy him didn't hinder him. He kept teaching. He kept teaching. Wow, do American pastors need to follow that pattern? May God give us strength and courage. To keep teaching, even when principal people 
want to cancel us. Just along this line of thought and connecting back to last week, remember how we talked about uh, we can't find our hope in elections? Remember that? Remember? That was just a week ago, right? Do, do you realize what's happened this week? Do you realize that Congress has voted to redefine marriage? Made possible by 12 guys with, uh, and ladies with R's by their name. You, you understand that? Do you realize that? Can you believe the arrogance of that? Can you believe the arrogance of that? A group of human beings have voted to redefine marriage. Now, here's why I tell you that. As a result of that, I received a word of warning this week from someone who loves this church very much. And it basically encouraged, encouraged us to prepare and be ready for possible ramifications that will come to churches that uncompromisingly defend the biblical definition of marriage. So please, please pray for your elders. Pray for wisdom and direction for your elders. Because this individual said, you, you need to start doing something now to prepare. Because it's coming. It's coming. Now, if, if and when it does, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'll be 70 in February. I might be dead when it comes. I, I hope not. I, I, I don't want to be dead, okay? But the good news for Christians is when you, when you are dead, man, you're with Jesus. So it's, it's, a, it's a win-win. It's a win-win. You know, like Paul said, Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ. That's good. But to die is gain. To die is more of Jesus. That's, that's gain, gain, gain. So we're, we're, we're in a good position. We're in a good position. But if and when they do come, where will you be? Where will you be? Will you, will you stand with your elders? Where, where will you be? Jesus talked constantly with the powerful against him. Number four, last one. Jesus taught with authority. He taught with authority. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught with authority. And not just authority. Remember what Matthew 28 says in, in, uh, in his great commission that he left with his disciples before the ascension. What kind of authority did Jesus have? All authority. Amen, brother. Amen. All authority. Jesus has all authority. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what does he tell them to do? Well, he tells them to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to observe, i.e. obey all that I've commanded. In other words, Jesus tells his followers, I have all authority, and I'm giving you the authority and the commission to take that message to the world, to all nations. Go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. In other words, teach them to respond properly to my authority. 
So younger generations, that's what we're trying to teach you. To respond properly to the authority of Jesus. Why? Because he is our ultimate teacher. I'm not your ultimate teacher. Your elders aren't your ultimate teachers. Your Sunday school teachers aren't your ultimate teachers. They're, they're, they're hopefully vessels, channels, conduits, instruments through which the ultimate teacher, Jesus, teaches We've already seen that this teaching with authority by Jesus upset the religious folks and the principal men of the people. (laughs) I love that phrase. The principal men of the people. Well, what about us? What about us? Let me ask you this morning, as we prepare to come to the table this morning, as part of our self-examination time. Is there any authoritative teachings of Jesus that upset you? Any authoritative teaching of Jesus that any teaching of Jesus would be authoritative, right? That's a I'm kind of that's kind of a redundancy there. Any teaching of Jesus that you disagree with? Any teaching of Jesus that you wish we'd clam up about? These are serious questions. Sadly, the American church in general seems to be upset about some of the authoritative teachings of Jesus. And so they're just going to change them on their own. I mean, Congress has just done that. They've redefined marriage. (laughs) So much so that many of the the so-called churches are ignoring the teachings of Jesus on certain subjects. And many are not just ignoring them. Many are silent about them. They're just not going to go there. But many have just reversed it. And you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries conducts a state of theology survey. It's a great survey to look at because it helps you to do what? Understand the times. Understand the times that we're living in. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries conducts a state of theology survey among American adults. They kind of do it in two sections, American adults, but then they focus in on American evangelicals, church folks, okay? Here's some of the results from Ligonier's recent survey done in 2020 on the state of theology within evangelicals, within church people. The teaching that Jesus is God. You think it would be a pretty safe one, right? 30% of evangelicals, 30% of church people disagree with that that basic fundamental truth. 30%. So if you were a normal group, I'm guessing there might be 150 people in here. Okay. 50 of you would disagree with that. (laughs) Okay, next to God chooses the people he will save. Now, granted, that's a tough one, but the disagreement among church people is up to 44%, almost half. People are dead in sin and need to be born again. Dead in sin, need to be born again. In other words, I guess the flip side statement would be people are basically good. 
46% of evangelicals, church people, disagree that you need to be born again. Even though Jesus, the authoritative ultimate teacher, told a religious dude in John chapter 3, buddy, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Hey, but all these principal men of the people, they disagree with that. No, 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 that's not right. That's not true. We're good. We're basically good. How about this one? Jesus is the way. The only way to God. The only way to God. 42% of church folks disagree with that, saying that God accepts the worship of other religions. This is what we're smack dab in the middle of, folks. One day we're going to be the minority voice on that. And probably one day very soon. How about, hey, here's one that hits right where we are. God created human beings, male and female. One in five church people disagree with that. 22%. That'd be 30 of you. Disagree with God's creative design saying that gender identity is a matter of a person's choice. It's where we are, gang. It's where we are. Elections aren't going to do it. <laughs> Government's not going to do it. They, they're turned against us. Here's how they end the survey. Here's their summary statement. The 2020 State of Theology Survey reveals widespread confusion in the United States about the Bible's teaching. Evangelicals, while exhibiting some hopeful movement in the direction of biblical fidelity, also seem to be influenced, listen, influenced by the culture's uncertainty about what truth is, who Jesus is, and how sinners are saved. These results reveal an urgent need, an urgent need for clear biblical teaching on the person of Christ, the gospel of grace, and note this last statement, because I think this is where many of us fall short. The person of Christ, everybody, hey, yeah, amen, we need to do that. In fact, that needs to be our exclusive focus. The gospel of grace, yeah, 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 we got that. We want that. And the way that the truth of God informs our ethical decisions in everyday life. So my question for you, dear church family and guests, how does the truth of God or let me put it like this. How does the instruction and commands of Jesus, our teacher, inform your ethical, ethical decisions in everyday life?
The summary ends with this statement. There's much work to be done in this age of confusion. And why is there confusion? I suggest this. Take Lee Flusher Chunk. Confusion results when the authority of Jesus is rejected or ignored. That's why there's confusion. About basic things. Basic things. Well, what about Advent? What about Christmas? What is Christmas? Since we've talked about teaching and Jesus as our teacher, what does Christmas teach us? What does our teacher teach us through the glorious event of Christmas? What does Advent teach us? Now, obviously, this could be a very, very, very long list. And no lists are exhaustive, right? So for time's sake, I'm just going to mention six things that Christmas teaches us real quick. And we'll camp on the last one. We'll camp on the last one. So the first five, I'll just basically mention them. Give you the scripture reference. You can ponder them more, okay? Six things that Christmas teaches us. Or, I guess to say it better, that our teacher... Jesus teaches us because of the truth of Christmas, okay? So, number one, Christmas teaches us that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place, all this birth narrative of Jesus, okay? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The verse that Chris read at the beginning of the service, there you go. All through the Old Testament, God promised a Messiah. God promised a deliverer. God promised a Savior. And Christmas fulfills that great promise. Number two, Christmas teaches us that God's revelation of himself has been completed. God's revelation of himself has been completed. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, these days that we're in, these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also, he created the world. In other words, Jesus, uh, as Michael Card saying, Jesus is God's final word. Final word. Jesus is God's full and final revelation of himself. You don't need to look anywhere else. Complete. Number three, Christmas teaches us that God's law has been fulfilled. God's law has been fulfilled. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that, that I've come, this is Jesus speaking, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's law. Remember the two guys walking on the Emmaus Road and after the resurrection, they're all dejected and 
downtrodden because of the crucifixion and they, they begun to hear. He said, we, we heard that he had, we'd seen, seen him alive and then Jesus appears to him right there. They don't know it's Jesus and, and, and he listens to him for a little while and then he says, beginning with the prophets and the law and all the Old Testament, he began to explain to them what all that had said about himself. It's all about him. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law in that he's the promised Messiah he fulfilled all the promises about the deliverer, but also in another way, which works good for us, which is glorious good news for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in that he obeyed it perfectly. For us, for us, that's a vital part of our salvation. If we had no human representative who lived perfectly, under the law of God, then we'll, we'd still be stuck with our first human representative, Adam, who disobeyed the law of God and caused us all to fall into sin. But we have a second Adam. We have a new Adam who's fulfilled the law perfectly, who's lived it perfectly, obeyed perfectly in thought, word, and deed, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above all names, Jesus, our Lord. Christmas teaches us that the law has been fulfilled on our behalf so we can be saved. Our representative has done it for us. And when God gives us a new heart and the faith to believe that, then his perfect record is counted or reckoned to our account. We've already studied this. We've already talked about this in the letter R. Jesus, our righteousness. His righteousness is is credited to us. He takes our sin, gives us his righteousness. What a deal. Why would you not accept that deal? Why would you turn that down? It's the greatest transaction in the history of the universe. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Number four, Christmas teaches us, hallelujah, that God saves sinners. Yeah, I'm a one-point Calvinist. God... God saves sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world. That's a Christmas phrase, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. And Jesus not only saves us from sin and God's wrath by paying for our sin and fulfilling the law, but he also gives us abundant life. Remember what God told, uh, or what Moses told the people of Israel after the Exodus, you know, he said, I, I've, the Lord spoke, speaking through Moses said, I, I've brought you out to bring you in. I brought you out of Egypt to bring you into the promised land. At Christmas, through Jesus, God saved us from our sin 
to abundant life. John 10, 10, the thief, Jesus speaking, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, that's, a, that's Christmas, that's a Christmas phrase. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Hallelujah. So it's, it's more than just being saved from our sin. That's glorious in itself. And we would never, could never end, stop thanking God for that. But it's more than that. It's more than just being saved from sin. It's more than just being saved from the bondage and shackles of sin. We've been saved to live abundantly. We've been brought out so that he could bring us in. Out of Egypt into the promised land. Out of sin into abundant life. Hallelujah. What a Savior is Jesus our Lord. Number five, the devil has been defeated. The devil's been defeated, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared. Christmas phrase, right? That's Christmas. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The serpent's head has been crushed, just as God promised in Genesis 3. One of the very first promises given has been fulfilled in Jesus at Christmas. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And finally, number six, we're going to camp here for a little bit uh, as we move to a close here. Christmas teaches us that God really does love us. He really, really, really does love us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we've loved God. No, we didn't. No, we hated God. When we were born, we came out against God, enemies of God. The Bible is very clear. The authoritative teaching of Jesus is very clear on that. In this is love. Not that we... Loved God first, but that he loved us and sent his son. That's Christmas. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the wrath remover for our sins, to take away our sins, to take away the wrath that came with that. In this is love that God sent Jesus. In this is love that Christmas happened. Let's, let's camp on that. If you've got your Bible, go to Psalm 119.41. Psalm 119, verse 41. And there we read this. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Now, I picked that verse because it definitely, it definitely has the ring of Christmas, right? With the words, come, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive. With the words, come, joy to the world, the Lord has, you know it, come. Okay, right. With the words, come and promise, promise. Christmas is all about the promise of the Messiah. 
So Psalm 119.41, even though it's not our one standard Christmas verse, it has definitely the ring of Christmas. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Focus on that phrase, steadfast love. It's one word in the Hebrew. And I'm kicking myself right now because I forgot to turn on my Lagos program and, and get the correct pronunciation, but it's the Hebrew word hesed or hesed. I'm not sure if that first D is long or short. It's the Hebrew word hesed, okay? This is a great word and one of the most important words of the Old Testament. Listen to its meaning. Loyal love. Loyal love. Loyal love. Unfailing kindness. Devotion i.e. a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship. Now let's ponder that definition for a few minutes. Several years ago, Pastor John MacArthur was asked what he considered the most important quality of a staff member of his church. And he quickly and without hesitation replied, loyalty, loyalty. This is the vital quality whereby the members of a group have each other's back. The quality that enables the relationship to not be ditched when there's disagreement, but where people are striving to work out their differences. Loyalty to one another moves people to always think the best of each other until the facts prove otherwise, and to defend them when others are attacking them unjustly. It keeps us from bailing out on each other without proper cause, Loyalty perseveres and hangs in there in the tough times. It's a rare quality in today's time, especially in a church culture that is dominated by people who bow at the shrine of individual autonomy. We talked about that in the, in the class today, in the membership class. Individual autonomy versus corporate unity. The word for steadfast love informs us that God loves us with this kind of love. He loves us with this loyalty, a loyalty that is so rare on the human level. The hymn writer Henry Light wrote of the reality of this in that old great hymn, Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them and true. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Beloved, beloved church family, at Christmas, God showed his face in the person of his son, Jesus. So all is right. Hallelujah. No matter what the world does, no matter what human individuals do, God has shown his face in the person of Jesus, his one and only son. R.C. Spur wrote a whole book on this word. In that book, entitled Love by God, he writes this, this love has been defined in hymnody as a love that will not let me go. 
It's a love that is never fickle, but remains constant. It is a bonding love. It's not abandoned at the first sign of strain. It is persistent and persevering, overcoming the irritations and annoyances that would threaten its continuity. It is a love that exhibits a vital bonding. The cords are so tight that no amount of wiggling can allow one of the partners to squirm free. To be bonded can also suggest the metaphor of glue or cement that affects an adherence an adherence that withstands efforts to pry the two apart or to break the seal between them. In Romans 8, 35 to 39, we read these wonderful words. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You say, but you've already read that. Yeah, you need to hear it again. I needed to hear it again. Because of Christmas, because of Jesus' 33-something years of perfect living, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of the ascension, God will never stop loving me. He will never stop loving me. Never. All is bright. All is bright. Everything's good. No matter what. This is Christmas. Hallelujah. Now, before we leave, going back to the definition of that word, hesed or he said, Translated steadfast love, loyal love, unending love, undying love. The end of the definition said it was a love or affection that is steadfast based on a prior relationship. Okay? I know it's the end of the sermon now. I know it's, you know, it's been, you've been here for a while, but it's, hey, it's not even noon yet, okay? But hang with me for this point. In what way is God's steadfast love for his people, for you, saved person, for me? In what way is his steadfast love based on a prior relationship? Well, what does the Bible teach? And I think this is one of the ones that, you know, almost half the church people disagree with, okay? Uh, what does the Bible teach? What does the authoritative teacher teach? What does Jesus teach us? He teaches us in more places than one that God knew us from the foundation of the world. In other words, there's a very real sense in which we had a prior relationship with God before we became his child, before we were born again, and guess what? Before we were even conceived. Is that amazing or what? 
What, what did God tell Jeremiah when he called him to be a prophet? In Jeremiah 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Prior relationship. Jeremiah, buddy, we had a prior relationship. I knew you was going to be a prophet before you were conceived. Before I formed you in the womb and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. My relationship to you is based on a prior relationship before you even existed. As a preborn baby. What did David acknowledge in Psalm 139, verse 16? Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that you formed, that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Prior relationship. Paul writes of it in Ephesians 1. You're familiar with this, verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, in a prior relationship of love, he predestined us. For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Things are too deep, too high for me. They're wonderful. I cannot comprehend them. Now let's consider one more thing real quick. Go back to Psalm 119.41 and look at the synonym for steadfast love. You know, Hebrews, they like to write in this, it's called parallelism. You know, you get two phrases in the Hebrew writing, and in the first phrase, a certain thing is, is called this, and the second phrase, the same thing is called that, referring to the same thing using two different words. We, we see that here in verse 41 of Psalm 119. Now watch this. Let your steadfast love, there's the first thing, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your, look at the synonym, salvation, according to your promise. Beloved, God's steadfast love for his people is not only the basis of our salvation, it is our salvation. It is our salvation. Let your steadfast love come to me. Oh, you got another word for that, uh, psalmist? Yeah. Salvation. Salvation. You should call his name Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. God's steadfast love for his people. It's not just the reason for our salvation. It is our salvation. It is our salvation. His love for us is our salvation. One, our final word today is a question. The bottom line, all-encompassing, heart-encouraging, life-transforming question for this second Sunday of Advent is this. How did God's redeeming Steadfast, loyal, unending, undying, merciful, covenant love 
summed up by the word salvation, come to us. You know it. At Christmas. It came to us at Christmas through the birth canal of a poor, young, teenage Jewish virgin named Mary. It has come to us in the person of Jesus, the fulfiller of all of God's promises and the bodily manifestation of Hesed, the bodily manifestation of his redeeming, sanctifying, unending, loyal love. And he has rescued us from our sin and shame and bondage and wrath, and we are his, and he is ours, and he will love us forever. In this, the love of God was made manifest, real, tangible among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Merry Christmas, church family. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus, the incarnation of your steadfast love. Bless your name. We bless your name. And we hunger for this table. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.